don't don't worry about it. Just throw it on the ground. <laughs> just drop the mic. <laughs> Thank you. I think you press it and hold it. Yeah, that's it. Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody today. Uh, I was talking with my uh, my family about um, awkward or uncomfortable situations that they've known in life or if they've ever experienced. We were doing it via text message. And uh, <clears throat> my son Bradley reminded me of, uh, of a time when, when he was in high school and he was crushing on this one girl. Uh, and... Uh, and she called him one day to ask him to come and babysit uh, her cat while she was out of town. And what she said was, hey, Brad, uh, so we're going to go out of town to visit Homososa Springs uh, to see the manatees. And, uh, and he interrupted her and he said, wow, that sounds like so much fun. I'll go ask my parents. <laughs> and she said, what? <laughs> and he came back and he said, hey, my parents said I can go. This is going to be so much fun. And she said, uh, okay, let me ask my parents uh, too. And he said, huh? And so in his words, he said, needless to say, I went to the backyard to dig a pit to crawl into and die because not only had I invited myself to join them on their family vacation, they let me go with them. And it couldn't have been any more embarrassing. Still, it was a very fun trip. They were incredibly nice about the whole thing, yada, yada, yada. The girl and I got married and had at least two kids that I can think of off the top of my head. So there's a case where, you know, crashing an event actually worked out. I mean, it really paid off for me anyway, because I got a great daughter-in-law and these beautiful grandkids. My son's okay too. So, But we're going to be reading about a really awkward and uncomfortable situation uh, this morning in our text, and one that also works out very well for the, the party crasher. Today we're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a way of following along and would like to, head to Luke chapter 7, please. Last week we read a vignette where John the Baptist sent a question to Jesus, wondering if Jesus were really the Messiah they were waiting for or if there was somebody else that they should be looking for. And we pointed out how John's confusion was understandable because, you know, Israel at that time was expecting something different from what Jesus came revealing. Jesus showed up forgiving sins and showing grace even to the hated enemy Romans. And everyone was expecting Messiah to come and deal with sinners and drive Rome from its borders. So we consider just how grace-filled the activity of Christ is in our midst, how the, the kingdom of God is working, and how we as the church are called to represent that same grace into this world. Now today, Jesus is going to be invited to another dinner party, only this time it's going to be at the house of a Pharisee. So far, Jesus has kind of been hanging out with the margins of society uh, on the outskirts of respectability. And of course, that has kindled the ire of the Pharisees. But here we have one Pharisee. Maybe he's trying to make his own uh, determination about Jesus. So he invites Jesus to come to his house and eat. And a surprising and an awkward event takes place there. And we're going to consider today a love for God, because what this whole thing, the thematic tone of what's happening in the text we're going to read is about uh, a love for God and a worship of God. We're going to consider what a love of, of God in Christ might do, what it might look like in our own lives, uh, and what it might yield for us as, as those who love him. So as people who have experienced the grace that Jesus gives so freely, how might we respond uh, 
to the total and complete forgiveness that we've received in Jesus. And those are words that need to be repeated. The total and complete forgiveness that we have received through Jesus. How might we respond to that? And that's going to be our theme. So if you're there in Luke chapter 7, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 36. It says one day, uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't say that at all. It says one of the Pharisees, see, got to be on your toes here. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. Now, granted, this sounds really weird for us as as modern Western readers. There's all kinds of questions that come to mind uh, in reading this. I mean... Uh, you know, imagine that we've invited like a really well-known speaker to come and, and share with us at Eastgate. And afterwards, we're going to take him to lunch, uh, you know, the Blue Top or maybe down at Pineapple Willies. We're sitting on the pier and all of a sudden somebody comes up off the beach and just falls at this speaker's feet, crying and praising this person, just saying how much they've changed their life. That would be awkward, right? I mean, we'd be kind of like it's security. Like, what can we do uh, here? Now, while we do have a major separation between ourselves and the culture that this, this, that this was written to, I also want us to realize that this whole scene is very uncomfortable and even scandalous in the culture that it was written in as well. First of all, Luke tells us that she's an immoral woman. Literally in the Greek, she is a sinful woman. And what does that mean? I mean, how do we even understand that? There's no qualifier on this term. So we really have no way of knowing for sure what this is talking about. Usually, and you know, this is what we have to recognize when we're reading an ancient text, usually, uh, given the, the patriarchal culture in which this emerged, that terminology was reserved or applied, when applied to a woman, referred to promiscuity or even prostitution. Though, as I said, there's no way to know, but it really doesn't matter what the nature uh, of this state was, because that's not the point. What she does and why she does it is what Luke focuses in on in this text. The other question that comes at least to my mind is, how did she break into the house and get to Jesus's feet uh, like that? It will be clear as we read, she was not invited by the, the host of this party. So here's where we have to kind of reconfigure our imagination of the scene, understand it in the context in which it was written. In the ancient Near East, they didn't really know, or in my case, enjoy privacy uh, like we do in our culture. In our culture, we're very kind of closed in. Our houses are our castles. We, you know, this is our, this is our space and nobody else, unless they're invited in, is going to be there. But in that culture, most homes uh, had outer courts that opened up to the street. And oftentimes, like if some important feast, like if a dignitary like Jesus, a special rabbi has come into town and they're, they're having a feast, then the prominent person in, whom, in whose home that would be would be a, a source of attraction. People would be coming from all over the place to gather around and watch and see what was going on. So they'd stand around at the opening of the gate or they'd stand at the windows of the courtyard there and look and see what was happening. In fact, it was, it was actually expected and encouraged 
for that because um, the person of honor, you know, it's a, in an honor shame culture like that, like that was, the person who was, who was a, in a position of honor wanted to be able to show off what it is that he had, wanted to be able to show the community at large what he was capable of, of doing. So her presence at the outer edges of the party is not that unusual. What breaks with the norm is that she somehow pushes past the gate and goes straight to Jesus. Now, it's a common experience that we read about in the Gospels, that those that are outside of the faith, like tax collectors or this woman who's been ostracized because of her reputation, uh, these people are drawn to Jesus. We see that over and over in the Gospels. What is it that they sensed in him and his message that, that just drew them to, to Jesus? But even more importantly, why do people seem so eager to avoid the church in our world? What is it that we're missing in, in all of this? Either way, when people ate at the table in that time, they didn't do it like we do. They didn't sit upright at a table with their feet underneath a table and consume their food uh, or, or sit at the couch, however you do it, <laughs> however anybody does it. Uh, they, they would actually uh, recline around what was called a triclinium. And it was a U-shaped table that was low to the ground and had couches with cushions all around the outside edges of it. So people would recline and eat with their feet out back behind them, not underneath a table. So it's likely Jesus being the guest of honor, that he's close to the courtyard gate, so she didn't have to go that far to get to him. Uh, and again, this is, a, this is describing a very uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable situation, a disruption not only of dinner, but of decorum in, in that time. The woman had to overcome a lot of barriers beyond just the gate there. She had to get past the popular perceptions about her, which Luke had already noted in there. Just as a woman, uh, even to contemplate this public display of emotional affection for Jesus was a risk because women just didn't do that sort of thing. Men didn't do it uh, that often, but it was worse in a patriarchal society. It was worse for a woman. It also says that she let her hair down which was another uh, huge cultural taboo at, at that time. Letting the hair down was something reserved for private and intimate moments. The, the fact that she had a reputation as a sinful woman actually just heightened the risk here. Since she clearly had been rejected by the religious system uh, of that time, she had no guarantee that Jesus wasn't going to reject her also. She just heard he was there and wanted to go and see him. I mean, you have to, given those, those elements of it, you've got to begin to feel what was happening in this text. You've got to feel the risk that was involved here. All of these risks for this woman were worth taking, clearly because of her love for Jesus. And we're going to find out as the story goes on, her love is inspired by God's forgiveness that she received through Jesus. So here's the thing that I want to notice, first of all, as we look at this really unusual scene, and that is that our love for Christ can prompt us to reckless demonstrations of worship. All of the risks that stood as barriers to this woman were recklessly pushed aside so that she could worship Jesus with her tears and her gratitude, and even, it says, an expensive jar of perfume. Now, there are parallel stories that are similar to this, in Mark and Matthew, as well as John, most scholars believe this incident actually is isolated, is something different that happened here. But again, we see this willingness to just go all out 
in order to worship Jesus. And that's where we need to stop and kind of consider our own lives. What, what barriers stand in our way of expressing our love and our gratitude to Christ? How much does public opinion shape our response of worship to God? How much does it inhibit our willingness to recklessly express our love for him? Mind you, when we talk about worship here, we're, you know, we're not narrowly defining it as the song portion of our, our church service, though it includes that. It certainly includes that. But worship, when we talk about it from a biblical standpoint, is something that's done with our lives. It's done with our resources, with our time and our energy, and everything that pertains to life is meant to be offered up to God as worship of Him, as gratitude to our Creator. So, so when I'm talking about this, please understand, I'm not you know, trying to nudge you to clap a little louder or, or <laughs> sing louder or something like that. Although, why not? I mean, really, going all the way back to Israel's special place with God, corporate singing was the central part of their lives. It was a major function that they did together. And this has carried on. This has carried on through the New Testament right up into our modern church age. God's people sing as an expression of love and adoration for our creator God. Corporate worship through singing is a time that we actually, Matt just mentioned it earlier, we put ourselves on hold. This is one of these times where our desire to control things is is diminished in this. We sing words that somebody else penned. We sing songs that somebody else chooses. We didn't come in here with our set list and hand it to somebody. We come in and we submit to what we're, we're hearing and being led in, but then we all sing the same words together. In one voice, we're singing these songs. We're lifting up these words to our creator, God. And there's just something about that intentional setting aside of self where something deep happens. This isn't about just trying to get emotional. You know, too often we measure our worship experiences by emotion. Well, that was really great because I really felt emotional in that. But it's deeper than that. Emotions, those are those waves up at the top. We're looking for those deep currents deep underneath that begin to shift and move and change. And those are the deep works that the Holy Spirit does in us when we set ourselves aside like this. But, you know, Rob, I feel dumb when I sing out loud. And, you know, cool, I get it. I'm sure that's possible. But I'm also sure that this woman at Jesus' feet felt a little dumb at one point, down there, uh, you know, crying and everybody in the room staring at her. I think it's very possible that in between sobs, it was going through her mind, mayday, mayday, this is a terrible idea. And yet she's immortalized by that. We don't even know her name, but for 2,000 years, we've been talking about her. One day we'll be in God's kingdom, however that looks or whatever that's working out like, and we'll come across someone and we won't know who she is. We won't know her by her face or by her name, but she'll say, well, I was at the feet of Jesus weeping once, and we'll know right away who she is. She'll never be forgotten because of this. There's a reason Luke includes these things, these stories into this narrative. They're meant to challenge us and get a hold of our hearts. But again, worship isn't just singing songs. It's a lifestyle. It's an orientation of life, one of gratitude to our creator who is also our savior, 
who is the forgiver of our sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All of life is meant to be our act of worship. Our love for God is revealed in our willingness to express that love to him as recklessly as he loved us, as recklessly as was revealed in the cross that he was willing to endure on our behalf. All right, well, the story goes on, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So we, we get a little insight just from this thing here. We, we, we gather from this that the Pharisee, and we're going to see his name is Simon here in a minute, invited Jesus to assess whether or not this guy is a prophet or not. His question reveals what his intentions were there. And so he's, he's thinking that he's got an answer now. I mean, clearly, the, you know, the, Jesus can't be a prophet because he doesn't know about the state of this woman. But Jesus demolishes that verdict because we keep reading verse 40. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. <laughs> so that is a drop the mic moment for Jesus in that. Jesus knows your thoughts. Uh-oh. Uh, so we keep reading in, still in verse 40. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Oh, go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. It's a parable. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other, pieces of pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you think, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. But she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who's this guy that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, notice he's just blowing right past those guys. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. In other words, her willingness to believe in God's forgiveness of her has led her into a new life. That's what he means by that. God, uh, uh, so uh, your, your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Shalom is the concept there, that wholeness, that state of well-being provided by God. So Simon the Pharisee, put this unnamed woman into a category called sinner. And he was able to view her abstractly that way. That's one of these clever human tricks we do. Uh, if she's simply flattened out as a classification, then she's no longer human and no longer owed love from him. Then he judges Jesus 
because of what he assumes is naivete on his part, the, allowing this sinner to touch someone like himself. So Simon the Pharisee effectively judges everyone in the scene except for himself. Another one of those clever human tricks that we're able to do. But it's interesting, though, that is that Simon's offense with Jesus actually clues us in as to how Jesus was responding to her. The, the fact that, that he's reacting this way, judging Jesus because of this, tells us that Jesus was not, you know, kicking her away. Stop it. You're making me look stupid in front of the guys here. No. He clearly was accepting her. He clearly was accepting what she was doing, this worship that she brought. And not only that, you notice Jesus humanized her and returned her dignity. Because where Simon the Pharisee had abstracted her as a sinner in his mind, Jesus says out loud in verse 44, look at this woman, see her, acknowledge her humanity and afford her the appropriate dignity because of that. And then Jesus tells this parable to reveal what's happening in this situation. And it's meaning, I mean, it's pretty close to the surface. Jesus pretty much spells it out, a story about forgiveness and gratitude. And the point is right there. The, the Pharisee didn't see himself as someone needing much forgiveness, maybe needing any forgiveness. He saw himself as accepted by God based on his race and his desire or his efforts to, to keep the law of Moses. The woman, on the other hand, knew exactly who she was and how far from God that she'd been. A mess. She knew she was a mess like every other human, like Simon the Pharisee, only he couldn't see it. She was so grateful for a new beginning with God and her gratitude overflowed in love. And in the parable, neither debtor did anything. You notice that? Neither debtor did anything to, to earn that forgiveness. All they did was fail to pay the debt. <laughs> all they could do was acknowledge that they couldn't do anything. And in doing nothing, they were forgiven. And this is meant to be a picture to us of God's grace for us. And what we gather from this is that we express a love for Jesus when we humbly receive God's grace. In this story, Jesus has illustrated the importance of our acceptance of God's grace and love and forgiveness apart from any good efforts on our part. And that's a struggle for us. As human beings, that's just not fair. Life doesn't work. What do we know of in, in, in our systems of things that works like that? Nothing works like that. And yet this is that otherworldly kingdom of God that represents something unthinkable to us, a willingness on the part of a holy God to forgive and to love us in spite of all that we've done wrong. A huge distinction appears here between the Pharisee and this woman in their responses. Because it's interesting, as Jesus lays this out, I mean, he's calling this guy out publicly, both the Pharisee and the woman violated cultural expectations. The woman, of course, you crashed the party and left her station to get near Jesus. The Pharisee withheld the, the normal practices of hospitality that were a part of that culture, withheld those things from Jesus. Obviously, 
because he felt superior to Jesus in this. He didn't need, he didn't see himself as needing anything from Jesus. He clearly saw Jesus as someone who should be grateful to be at his table. In contrast, the woman was so deeply aware of her own inadequacies, her own inability to to find wholeness on her own through her own efforts that when she found acceptance in Christ, her gratitude was overwhelming. Clearly, even based on the story that Jesus tells, this woman knows there's nothing she did to earn this. And to qualify, it's not her gratitude that earned her forgiveness. That was just the result of her being forgiven. Grace, God's grace, it will change us when we recognize God's love for us. When we encounter that, when we really, really begin to to see the enormity of his love for us, it will change us. It certainly did for me. You've heard my story way too many times. You're probably sick of hearing it. But I had spent my life as a believer trying to earn God's favor through my religious behavior, through all of the things that I stood against, through all of the things that I gave up, through all of the judgments that I meted out towards those who weren't living right. And when I came to the end of that rope, and there was nowhere else to go. I was exhausted and unable to keep at it. I had an encounter with Jesus. He revealed himself to me. And I merely brushed against the abyss of that grace. And it changed me forever. I've never been the same. I've been shaped by that grace from that time forward, nearly 30 years ago. It appears to be true of this woman in our story, this wholeness, this peace This shalom that she received from Jesus is something that she couldn't manufacture on her own. It's something we can't manufacture on our own by our religious acts or our delusions of self-righteousness, of not needing to be forgiven much. I wonder sometimes the opposition that's presented against grace, it's thrown around as though it's some sort of cheap and easy kind of thing. I wonder if there's really behind that a lack of awareness of the enormity of the gap between ourselves and God and what had to be what had to be overcome in order to restore us. And again, this isn't to say that there's no place, you know, for for when we say, you know, this it was doing nothing, it was doing nothing, and it's not to say that there's no place for for our our lives to conform to God's intent. Of course there is. Obviously, we're called to live good lives, but not as a means of achieving acceptance by God. That's a response. Just like this woman, any good work we do is because we've been accepted already just as we are. God loves us without condition. God loves you without condition. And it's that love and grace that draws out a loving response from us. This is why it's meant to free us from a religion of obligation. It leads us into a life of reciprocal love. That's why we call Christianity not a religion, but a relationship with God. And that's the thing. A call to reciprocate this kind of love? I mean... 
That's huge. <laughs> That's a lifetime to, to, to sort out and, and ponder how that would work. But it's like with any relationship. I'm, you know, I'm 38 years married to my wife. And yet my love for her has, has grown not in its emotional state, but, but the, the, era, the ongoing activity of trying to discern her to understand her. Look, I'm sorry, this males and females, that's hard sometimes to, to understand each other. That's an ongoing dance that takes place in our lives. And it's, and it's, it's ever increasing in my life after these years. That's the same with, with our relationship with God. It has to do with this ongoing determination to discern what pleases him. Why would I want to do that, Rob? Because he's forgiven us for so much. I mean, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. And I know there's so much there beyond the stuff I did intentionally. All the ways in which as a man nearly 60 years old can look back on his life and think, oh my gosh, what was I thinking back then? Why did I do that? Whoa, whoa. To realize that a gracious God knew me through all of that and loved me unwaveringly through all of that. Grace is not some simple get out of jail free card that leaves me hanging free with doing whatever I want to do. Grace is this call to reciprocal love that challenges it me more than any legalistic system I was ever involved in. If we're guided by that love and that grace that saved us, it will find expression in our lives, just like it did with this woman. And that's what the scriptures seem to be saying. God doesn't want some payment made. He wants love returned as we would want in any relationship. In contrast, Simon the Pharisee felt he had earned a place of God-like judgment of everybody around him simply because he didn't seem to feel the need for forgiveness that much. Pete Alwinson, he's a noted pastor down in Southern Florida. He once said, if grace is our focus, we will become obedient. If obedience is our focus, we will become mean. <laughs> and, and I think this is the heart of why Christians and the evangelical church has a reputation in our culture for being mean. And I don't think that's unearned. I think we earned that well. I mean, look at the comment section of any given Christian article online. You're going to see some of the angriest vitriol you've ever seen in your life. There's, there's no worse hell that I can think of than to get involved in one of those kind of conversations. If you ever go and read them, you go read, read. No, actually don't go and read those things. Preserve your soul. Uh, and stay away from the comments section. One Christian pastor just recently was, was uh, his blog is one that I read often uh, now and then. I, mean, I don't know, this is not a guy I'm always in agreement with. But he made an offhanded political remark in one of his articles, and he came back to point it all out. He was inundated with hateful responses. Even, even people wishing for his death in there. Not from atheists, 
Not from devil worshippers. You'd think if anyone's going to do it, it would be devil worshippers. Those guys should be mean, we would think. If they're worshipping the devil, that seems like a mean kind of thing to do. But it's not. It's from people who profess to follow Jesus. Something's askew here in this. How can we do this so thoughtlessly? I just believe that if we keep our focus on God's great grace on what Jesus has done for us because he loves us and for no other reason. If we keep our focus on the reckless, self-sacrificial way in which he proved his love for us on the cross, I believe we will be people whose lives get shaped by that grace. We will be people who bring that same grace into our world. Let's embrace his love for us. Let's never get over it. Let's build our sense of identity, our values and our purpose on God's unthinkable grace and forgiveness that he's shown us. Because he loves you. You are accepted. You are a child of God. You are a friend of Christ. You are a united heir with him because he loves you. You are God's temple. You're a member of his body because Christ loves you. You are a saint. You are redeemed and you are forgiven. You are complete and free from all condemnation. You are a new creation chosen by God and dearly loved. You don't have a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and a sound mind. You have bold access to the throne of God and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You just need to believe in and accept that gracious description of who you are. It makes all the difference in the world. Right on? All right, well, this morning we're going to celebrate that grace in the sacred ritual of communion. Did everybody who came in today get one of these packets? I kept mine in my pocket. (laughs) We are looking forward to a day soon when we're going to get back to doing communion the way we did before. Um, If you don't have any, put your hand up and the lovely Walt is going around to to help you. Even surprising some of you, I see. (laughs) And if you're watching online today, this is a time to scrounge around, find uh, bread and wine or crackers and Kool-Aid or... No, don't do Kool-Aid. That sounds weird. But just uh, anything. Just whatever. Whatever you can find. (laughs) Soon. Soon. Hang in there. It'll be soon. So... On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he instituted a sacrament. A sacrament is a sacred ritual. It's something that the church has, has followed now for 2000 years. It's a, it's a, uh, when we say it's a sacred ritual, a better way to really understand it, it's kind of performance art. It's something where we're acting something out that is deeply significant to us as, as human beings in relation to God. And so when Jesus was with his disciples, as best we can tell, he was celebrating the Passover meal. And in the middle of this Passover meal or near the end of this Passover meal, there are two elements involved in it, the Ephicomen bread and the cup of redemption. And as Jesus got to those, he took those two elements and he repurposed them for his followers. 
It's interesting because the Passover celebration was something that reminded Israel of their covenant relationship with God, how God delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And it was the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb that was applied to the door posts of the house that delivered them from death and actually delivered them from the bondage, the slavery they were in. It's interesting that when Jesus does this ritual, he leaves the, the sacrificial lamb part out. And there's a reason for that. And he explains it when he gets into the, to the symbolic uses of bread and wine. As he passed around the bread, the Ephicomen bread, he said to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. So on these little packets here, if you're not familiar with it, there's two pieces. There's a little cellophane part at the top. There's a wafer in there. We're going to take this. When we take this, don't try to chew it. I learned the hard way. Just let the thing melt. Uh, but this is, be- this is our symbol of sustenance. This is our symbol of bread. And what Jesus was saying when he said, my body given for you, he was meaning that the reason the sacrificial lamb part was excluded from this ritual is because he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who fulfills what the lamb was a type of. Jesus, by going to the cross on our behalf, bore away the consequence of sin for us forever. Past, present, and future. The forgiveness we were talking about today in this message comes to us through his sacrifice, and we honor it. We remember it. That's what this is all about. Jesus told us when we do this to remember him. This sacrament is intended to draw our focus back to the cross, the cross of his love, the cross of his grace that provides for us forgiveness of sin, deliverance from its consequences, not based on our ability to do good works or keep a law, but based solely on his love for us. So Father, we count this wafer as symbolic of your body. And as we take this in, we pray, Father, that you, by your spirit, will inhabit us that we will become what we eat, that we will become like you in your love, in your grace, in your righteousness, in your holiness. And we take this now in Jesus' name. Now at the end of the supper, they would drink the cup of redemption reminder of what God had provided to them in, in leaving Egypt and the promise of new life that they had of this covenant relationship with God. And he took that and he said, now it's going to mean something else. This is, I believe he's saying, symbolic of his blood. He said, this is a new covenant, a new covenant in my blood, a new relationship with God. Now we are reconciled to the divine based on what Christ has done for us, not our efforts, not our good works. There was nothing we did to earn this or deserve this. But because God loves us, Jesus poured out his blood for us. And so, Father, we count this as a symbol of that blood which has redeemed us, purchased our forgiveness, and reconciled us with you. Father, as we take this in, reinforce in our lives and in our spirits that we are united with you. We are not cut adrift in this mean world with nowhere to look for hope. We are connected to you, seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus.
And not only that, we belong to one another as your body. We now belong to you and to one another. So let the same love that was shown to us in your death on the cross now inhabit our lives so that we show it to others as well. We take this in Jesus' name. Paul said, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he returns. Meaning that in this sacrament, we point back to a historic event, the past. We speak of what that meant to us in our present. And we look forward to a day to come when Jesus returns and sets all things right. So let the hope and the peace and the glory of that fill your lives and hearts today. Why don't you stand with us, if you will. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what it is you've provided for us. Help us to walk in that grace, into newness of life. Help us to be agents of that hope and that grace in this world. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, finish up here this morning. Um, Let's... Pray this prayer together. It's a fitting way to conclude this today. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God, kids, people with, just actually, just let's not worry about it. Go in peace, you children of God. Love each other.